0: I saw a jars that shocked my mind at the time because they, they look like feet. And I'm like, there's no way there's little feet in these jars. And sure enough, there was. And it just blew my mind away. But again, I said this many times. I had never been in an abortion clinic before, so I didn't know what really to expect. But common sense tells you that's not normal even in an abortion clinic.
1: Hello and welcome to the Alan Scoop.
2: With me and Michael and
1: I'm Phelan McAleer
2: and we got the two of us today. Wow. Yes. yes.
1: Back from Ireland. Back from Ireland. So still, this is still jet lagged.
2: Yes, just a little bit.
1: Yes. Yeah. So this this is a kind of a special podcast today because Saturday will be the 10th anniversary of the conviction of Doctor Doctor Kermit Gosnell, the Philadelphia abortion doctor, uh, who's serving. Uh, several life sentences for the murder of babies, murderous patients, and performing uh, late-term illegal abortions. We'll discuss our memories of Gosnell. We'll interview several people who knew him. Uh, we'll talk, we will talk. We wrote a New York Times bestseller, produced the Gosnell movie, produced a top-selling true crime podcast. We did even did a play in New York, which was reviewed by the New York Times twice. Mm-hmm. They, they got so angry about it. But also, we're going to bring you exclusive photographs you've never seen before of Gosnell's exclusive lifestyle. Now, we're going to show you photographs from inside the clinic, but they've been made public before. But Gosnell's secret life, we've managed to get hold of the Gosnell family album and, uh, you know, the luxury, joyful life that he lived Enjoyed. Yeah. on the proceeds of crime. So it's quite a sight. And later we'll be talking to the uh, president of the National Right to Life. Organization. Uh, bias. Yes, about her, her memories
2: of Gosnell and, Ken, and what and what's happened in the meantime. And we're also going to talk to Jim Wood, Detective Jim Wood, our old friend. You know, single-handedly the most responsible person for putting Gosnell behind bars. And he he's always deflecting away from himself. By the way, he's constantly saying there was a whole team. We know there was a whole team, but it was because of him and yeah. because of his. Um, because of him, his seeking out of justice for a Bhutanese refugee, that this case was eventually as successful as it was, and Gosnell is serving, as we know, three three life terms. And
1: we'll be having some exclusive possum photographs for you at as the well. very end. At of the, the show. very end, just to yes. ch- leave you on a cheery note. Yes, I've had so, a few
2: people contact me about the possums, but yes, yes,
1: yes we've we've a whole possum.
2: There's a whole possum thing going on now. Yes, there is. Yeah. It's, I, like a need, wild, it's like a wildlife reserve in our backyard yes, now.
1: Whoever said possums were solitary because we've got more than a few yes, in we our backyard. <laughs> yes, it's, yes. lot
2: now. Word has got out. It may not have been a, a plan to have fed them in the first place. Yes. But first...
1: Where are we now with Gosnell and what lessons have been learned on both sides? Because good people learn and bad people learn lessons too. So let's remember what happened. Ten years ago, Kermit Gosnell was convicted by a Philadelphia jury... Uh, for performing illegal late-term abortions and murdering three babies born alive during the procedures. He was also convicted for for killing Karna Amaya Munger. That was a manslaughter conviction, a miscarriage of justice, in my opinion. It's thought he killed hundreds, if not thousands, of babies uh, illegally, or killed them after, uh, born alive. Uh, it's thought he did hundreds, if not thousands, in a 30-year killing spree. And, of course, the Gosnell case, you'll remember, became a media sensation for a while, not because... The media were going crazy covering it, but because the world's media refused to cover it, journalists didn't and don't want to cover negative abortion stories or abortion stories that put show abortion in a negative light. Eventually, they were ashamed into covering the trial. Social media was a different thing then. It wasn't censored. You weren't suppressed. You could actually put pressure on people. But so these
2: th- days, there seems to be no such reticence about covering abortion stories, or we should say at least certain Abortion stories. So, since Gosnell and particularly since Roe v. Wade was overturned, there's been story after story about women whose lives have been negatively affected, negatively impacted because they live in states that have brought in abortion bans or very restrictive laws.
1: And of course, we know Hollywood has helped out uh, with movies, lots of mini series, uh, documentaries, and a slew of network primetime shows. Dramatising the alleged plight of women who say they're unable to get an abortion or are unable to get healthcare as an abortion in the new post-Roe world. Every one, every one of the TV series we watch, series, yes, series, series, we watch, have had this kind of, this type of story. Often, we've had... You know they run abortion stories several times in the one seasons. Mm-hmm. One season we had to watch, stop watching the Good Doctor because it was just relentless propaganda. Um, and of course, we've highlighted before that Planned Parenthood even has a full time staff member based in Hollywood uh, to to whose only job is to help writers craft the storyline. Karen Spruce. Karen Spruce. But actually, you know, go, given how cultishly woke. Hollywood is and the Hollywood writers are, uh, you know, who are currently in strike and we're all supposed to feel sorry for them. Oh, yeah. But how cultishly woke they are. I don't think they need the help, but maybe they do. But, you know, stories, the media stories and the Hollywood stories have co- concentrated and focused on certain states that have you that have know, restricted abortion yes, or
2: have you know semi-banned abortion. Yes. no, no state has fully banned abortion. But by the whilst
1: way. ignoring the trend of increasingly, and and this is a bigger trend, increasingly permissive abortion laws being passed in very many states. You this call is, them
2: permissive. I call them extreme. Yeah, yes. ex- very extreme laws. The kind of laws that nowhere in Europe, Europe don't have these kind of laws. Yeah, like Scandinavia, few. you know, the the very progressive Scandinavians wouldn't countenance the kind of laws that are now very that are now regular in the most populated states in America: in New York, in California, New Mexico, color Colorado, um, Vermont oregon like it's it's a lot
1: you can now have an abortion up to nine w- months with no barriers up to nine months and with we feel that, like
2: that we feel like that that's a very very untold story that the media are very focused on these kind of these stories where they the woman's life life is threatened and you know all these kind of very extreme stories that you know that i would really question in terms uh, of the yes, rare, medical point rare
1: stories and we wonder are they even medically sound or through um but, you know, what the media hasn't focused on is that post-Roe, there have been six abortion ballot initiatives in the states. And what happened was the pro-life side was outspent and the media creating a panic over over restrictive laws. The pro-life side lost all six of these ballot initiatives. They even lost one in Montana, a state Donald Trump won by 16 points. So the media focused on, as I say, bringing on stories, on, on on women finding it difficult well, to have an abortion. Yes, are very extreme
2: stories. But there's
1: been no stories about how in Montana, doctors are not legally obliged to try and save the life uh, of a baby born alive after an abortion. You know, the, 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 But they have uh, given extensive coverage to attempts by the state's governor to legislate around the ballot initiative. You know, uh, well, not the state's governor, the state's legislator and governor. Um, there's also a darth of, you know, there's no stories about the increased number of women aborting babies up to nine months in these states. where We said that the rules have been completely relaxed. California, Michigan, New York, Colorado, Oregon, D.C. and Vermont and New York. Uh, the, you can now have an abortion for basically, without any barriers, up to nine months. Uh, there are now tens, we, we believe that there are now tens of thousands of these abortions every year. Uh, it's hard to get an exact figure because the CDC doesn't force states to collect the data or Which is interesting send in send itself, in, by yeah, the way. Yeah. Why not? Why not? Because they know... That it could be a hundred thousand uh, late-term abortions uh, across the United States. So it could be more. For example,
2: so in California, for example, you know the CDC make it don't make it mandatory for any of the states to report the numbers. California chooses. Not to report, and California among any experts, any anyone would agree that uh, California is the place with the most abortions. So you know, th- th- there's a, there's a huge amount of information. I think you that have to have. you have
1: to report to the CDC if somebody gets food poisoning in your uh, <laughs> restaurant, yes, yes, but not if someone has an abortion at 39 weeks. Um, so the way it is, I mean, and and you know, you have got to think about it from both sides here. It's probably in neither side's interest to point out the fact that abortion has actually become easier to access since Roe, pretty much. Uh, Pro-choice advocates continue to push the narrative of women uh, in extreme medical conditions being denied medical care. That helps turn out donors and voters. Uh, The pro-life side probably don't want to highlight losing ballot initiatives also uh, they prefer to highlight their victories you know increase legislation etc so the public believe that abortion laws are a one-way tsunami of restrictions uh you know which brings us back to gosnell mm-hmm. you know and uh, you know he's, he's pretty delusional you know 10 years ago we walked i walked into a philadelphia courtroom and found a story that led us to write a book produce a movie a true crime podcast a play It's really still not finished. We're still not finished. Uh, But an abortion doctor who is also a serial killer. As we know, this has meant us visiting and having many, many, many conversations with dear Dr. Kermit Gosnell. Boy, those conversations. Um, He likes to talk. He really does like to talk. And these and and these conversations, there's always been one particular theme.
2: That he's innocent, you know, yes. that's what he does. He spends his days writing poetry and celebrating abortion and keeping fit. And when I say celebrating abortion, his poetry is about celebrating yes. abortion. And he's keeping fit because he says when he's exonerated, he's going to celebrate by running a triathlon. So we we eventually had to, you know, block him phoning because he, we'd be at like a friend's wedding and the next thing the phone would ring and it'd yes. be Kermit Gosnell. Will you accept charges from Huntington Prison? Which, you know, eventually, I mean, I can remember, I can see myself in the car one time. I, I, was, I was in Malibu. I, yeah, and I was like, you know, having a nice day. And the phone rings, and it's like this is this guy phoning because he wants to talk, and he's no, and obviously nobody else wants to talk to him.
1: Yeah, so but at the time, I remember we felt he was delusional with his bad poetry and repeated claims of of, of innocence. But, but given the changes now in laws in the blue, purple, and even some red states, uh, perhaps we
2: are the delusional ones. Yes,
1: perhaps we are the delusional ones. There hasn't been a ballot initiative in Pennsylvania yet but given time it probably will happen uh, in large parts of America you can now abort babies up to 9 months and doctors can let babies born alive die of neglect mm-hmm. uh, these changes could be coming to Pennsylvania soon uh, then we could then you could legit, legitimately ask if Gosnell would even be charged in today's post-Roe world uh, so watch this space, Kermit Gosnell could be running his triathlon yet
2: Uh, Perish the thought. I think, um, I'm very much hoping that that doesn't happen, but we are very conscious of the fact that, you know, and and it's basically the definition of what we do here. It is, this is an incredibly untold story. There was a time, you know, Bill Clinton, you know, talked about safe, legal and rare. We're so far away from that now. The Democrat Party is so far away from that now. So the Democrat Party, their platform now is anytime, anywhere, anytime, for any reason, up to nine months. That's what they're, that's what they're pushing for. And It's interesting. That's what they're pushing for legislatively. But that's not what the country wants. And, you know, we talk later to Carol Tobias about that, by the way.
1: We should go now to these photographs that we managed to get our hands on uh, in a a photographs you won't see anywhere else. I think what
2: they tell, I think what these photographs for me tell is like, so this is this is this is Kermit Gosnell in his heyday when he was, you know, regularly um Murder. murdering babies by delivering them alive, inducing the the mother to give birth to a baby and then cutting that baby's neck with scissors. This is how he looked when he at the in the evenings and on his weekends while he was doing this. And we're talking about thirty years of this killing spree. Look at him there. In his, you know, where, you know, cycling, en- cycling, enjoying, you know, and, and look at how many of these photographs, by the way, He's have ca- him with family and with children, yes. you know, enjoying family, enjoying th- his children, enjoying, you know, enjoying his life, enjoying his boat, Get the enjoying up the, the, there's a lot of family photographs. We are blurring out the photographs uh, of the people, the yeah. other people in these, stru- but yes. these are very young children here in these photographs. Oh,
1: look at him with a baby. Look at him
2: with a little baby holding the baby's hand. Look at that, holding the baby's hand there. And this is him at his, that's the lake house there well, this yeah one he is had a, a lake house he has you know? a lake house yeah. and you, there he is by the again, way the
1: lake house is now I believe owned by his lawyer he, that that's how he, he paid, paid
2: for his thing there he's having a lovely beer hanging out with one of his daughters you know gorgeous another one with the daughter I think
1: it's a daughter-in-law
2: daughter-in-law maybe and there he is look at him in his in his swimming swimming gear he's, on a beach on a holiday because he's going to do
1: a triathlon
2: because he's just going to do a triathlon and again all these happy well d- dressed man again another, with another photograph with a child yeah. you know load all, lots and lots of photographs of him with a child always, always smiling and this is him like, that looks like a foreign country, by the way. That looks like it might be somewhere, somewhere yes, in Asia well, or whatever. He's doing a triathlon. Yeah, and he might have been doing a triathlon. But there he is at the ho- Holiday Inn. And having a ball. Having a ball. Another family photograph there. Look at the number of times. I don't know, many we've seen now already with him holding a baby. A baby. Yeah. Lots and lots of photographs like that again.
1: Playing, playing,
2: you know, Game. You know. Game, card, games. card games, lying on the floor. There he is, another triathlon. You know, and we just, I'm just flicking through these film because just for yes. people to get a sense, living the life what a happy time he was having. Yeah. And it's just, it's that, it's super creepy actually yeah. to think what this man was doing for a living during all of this and all of this, yes. you know, living the life. As I said, there's, the, that, bo- there's the boat out yes, on the boat Yes, I'm on a
1: ski. That's a ski. What is it? One of those ski boats. Or yeah. yeah. I, I like this one because this, this is him in his filthy kitchen. It's filthy kitchen, but also look at the amount of utensils. Now you do a lot of cooking. I have
2: have a similar number of utensils. I'd prefer you not to draw attention to that. Six?
1: You don't have six containers of utensils. You'd be surprised. A whole wall of utensils. I mean, okay, maybe, but I know. But
2: yeah, but very, but but for a doctor to be working and 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 to be clean, you know, look at him cooking in a kitchen as dirty as that, and I can't really talk. But that is that is a pretty disgusting it's situation pretty, there. we've
1: been in we've been in his various places where he works and that and it it, it is he it's pretty awful. Yeah. So that's let's let's now go and talk to Carl Tobias of the president of the National Right to Life, yeah. Yes. um about post-row uh, post gosnell and uh, let's go over to that interview now.
2: Well, we're very very happy to be joined now by Carol Tobias who is the president of the National Right to Life Committee. And we've had Carol on the show before. I was just looking at this up, Carol. It's been it's been a couple of years. You're very welcome back. I'm happy to be on. As you probably know, I think I wrote to you. This is a very significant week. This is 10 years, the 10 year anniversary this week on Saturday, 10 years since Kermit Gosnell was convicted um, and mm-hmm. imprisoned for three life sentences for what he had done, Um what are your memories? We're just thinking this whole podcast today is looking back on what's happened since what happened then, um, and our impressions of all of that and and why we did all the things that we did. What what was your first um, contact with
3: this story, with the Gosnell story? I think it was something that showed up in National Right to Life news that I, I you know read and that it was happening. Um, I, I was just shocked that. I guess I knew that there was just a dirty side to the abortion industry, um, but this really highlighted everything that is wrong. That there are no protections for women. Uh, the abortionists can pretty much do what they want, um, you know, without impunity. Um, until, thankfully, this one actually did. What um, was you know Gosnell was held accountable for his crimes. Um, but I think my biggest shock was this wasn't a real story. Uh, it was pretty much buried by the media around the country. And people still don't really know what's happening inside those abortion facilities.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's so true. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a classic, fantastic news story. That, and I, and I, as a journalist, we can say that it's a it's a story that... that just screams out to be on on every headline you know it's got a hot political issue it's got racism like don't forget Kermit Gosnell was a racist he he had nicer rooms for white women than black women he was black himself it's got it's got all that interracial racism it's got real racism uh, it, it's it's got bureaucratic state uh, it's got how regulations don't work uh, and it's got murder, it's got the murder of an immigrant. Uh, most of Kermit Gosnell's clients were were minorities. It's got all that. Mm-hmm. But the media steadfastly refused to to run this story. One Washington Post writer famously said we don't cover local crime stories. But I mean, in that respect, George Floyd was a local crime. Yes. Story. Yes. So so none of this made sense unless you realize they're not in the news business. They're in the uh, pushing an agenda business,
2: which becomes more significant. Yes. yes. So uh, you
1: were you were you you had a suspicion there was a gos- there were Gosnells out there, uh, but but it was a shock. You're saying that that when you really realized, oh, just how
3: there. bad it was. Well, there were stories, of course, throughout the years. So you know, I guess we we did kind of realize, of, you know, that um, the reporting wasn't happening as as it should, um, women were being victimized. Um, but this one, I think it was just so blatant. The fact that he was, you know, holding the babies in his refrigerator and, you know, there was just so much that all kind of came together that other abortionists might've been accused of one thing or another. This just seemed to have it all. Um, and, and I, I thought another great example or, um, I guess, story that we should be telling of, of this is that the local abortion facilities planned parenthood knew about it um, because women had come into their facility after being at gosnell's and talking about how horrible it was the health department had been given um you know information and they didn't do anything about it Um, there were just so many others that i think were complicit in covering up what was actually happening in that building
1: that's a very good point yes i mean by the way I, I, i missed i missed I missed so much about the story that the media should have covered. Yeah, you're right. I mean, two women died in that facility uh, and the health officials never, never even went in to investigate, uh, you know, these were the, w- the
3: National Abortion Federation went in to investigate and they found that, um, you know, it was too horrible. They didn't want him as a member, but they didn't tell anybody.
1: That's right. They, it, they didn't it, tell it, anybody. It was the worst yeah. they ever seen. They said, but they didn't tell anyone. They just let women yeah. go on because, by the way, there were minority women. and Who cares?
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and the idea is that they care about women, but I think we know for, we know for sure that they, that they don't. You know, m- moving forward from that, do you think anything has changed? So this 10 years has passed. Quite a, obviously we know Dobbs was the massive change. What else, you know, what Dobbs,
1: else? Dobbs was the overturning
2: of Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision, which, is, which has been the big, the big legislative change, I suppose, since, since Gosnell. Uh, do you think that the Gosnell case changed
3: anything otherwise in the, in the country? Well, I think it definitely made pro-lifers more determined. Um, You know, they don't want this happening to their their fellow uh, women. And, um, you know, I think abortionists are probably under more scrutiny now than they have been in the past. Um, Certainly pro-lifers have a lot more news outlets than they did, you know, not just relying on mainstream media, but, you know all pro-life groups have their way of getting messages out, whether it's social media or, you know, still their own newsletter um, that I think anything like this that happens is maybe being covered a little more. Um, And, you know, I know it still happens because there were other cases like Wolf Gosnell did it. Why is this guy, you know, still doing it? Um, But, but I think the pro-lifers are more focused on making sure that if something like this does come out, it's, you know, it is disseminated.
2: It's interesting. I think you, you've put your finger on something that's interesting that I've been kind of very conscious of and that we've been we've been thinking about recently as well is that it, I think with Gosnell, you know, the story really got got traction because of social media, because of pro-lifers using social media to talk to each other and to get this story out. Molly Hemingway famously, and we wrote about her a lot Yes. in, uh, in the book, you know, she basically took on Sarah Cliff, Sarah Cliff, who famously from the Washington Post that Phelan referred to earlier, who had said, this is a local news story. And Molly Hemingway directly tweeted to Sarah Cliff at the time and said, really, a lo- this, you know, this is a local, really? Uh, this." And, local and the Washington crime, Post, yeah. within a few days, had to basically backtrack and apologize yeah. and say, of course, this isn't a new a local news story. So that, they, so I think, in a way, for me, I, 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 you, any of both of you could agree, disagree with me, but I do think that somehow... The pro-life movement discovered social media through the Gosnell case yes. because it was their way of getting this
1: story out. But the social media discovered the power of social media ah. and have spent the last ten years yeah. censoring pro-life and conservative voices because they realized, oh, this is an actual this is a way of conservatives and alternative people and people with interesting points of views from actually amplifying those points of views. Uh, and asking people difficult questions. Mm. And so the, the establishment protected the establishment. And they've now spent the last 10 years uh, trying, using algorithms and straight out bans and censorships and shadow banning to stop stories taking off and to stop questions being asked.
3: Have you
2: found that, Carol?
3: Oh, definitely. I get a lot more information from social media, news information, than I do looking at you know, just websites of the, like I said, the mainstream media. Um, there's a lot that they might have one sentence or they don't mention it at all. And there's a lot happening um, and you find out on social media. So we have to be on, a, you know, all these different um, outward netlet networks outlets uh, to make sure that we are getting the message out.
2: So since Dobbs, I mean, one of the things just talking about the media, and I think this is I mean, I think this is kind of, you know, become really we're become really aware of this since Dobbs. Um, you know, there were obviously there's been six ballot initiatives that have that were where the question, the abortion question, came up. Three of those ballot initiatives were pro-life, and three of them were uh, pro-abortion. And unfortunately, in each case, the pro-life movement failed. But and I think the reason, I think the reason that that happened was because the media has been since Dobbs, the media have been terrorizing women, mostly women, terrorizing women with these stories, with very dramatic headlines that we see that because of a, you know, the ban in, in Texas, women will die, women are going to die. What, have you been aware of all of this incredible amount of mainstream media collusion with the pro-abortion side to terrorize uh, women about um,
3: the restrictions? Anyone that's paying attention at all to the issue has to notice how bad it is yes we are hearing stories from various states um, about how women are suffering from um, ectopic pregnancies and miscarriages and and problems you know complications that have arisen and they're going to die because they can't get help uh, part of it I truly wonder if there are you know I know there are some doctors and hospitals that are concerned about lawsuits and they you know don't want to get involved and they'll just tell her to go away and you know come back if the situation gets more serious. But I truly believe that there are also some doctors out there that are trying to make it sound as scary as possible. And I would question whether they may even be putting the lives of their patients in danger because they want to use them as an example to try to enhance abortion and stop pro-life efforts to save those babies.
1: This is very possible. And we saw that. We've actually covered a story in Indonesia where environmentalists used a sick baby uh, to push a case. And the baby ended up dying rather than getting medical treatment because the baby was a poster child for their particular cause. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, you know, yes, there have been a lot of um, anti-abortion legislation in some states since Roe was overturned. uh, But there have also been... uh, a huge slew of, 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 of laws and legislation uh, mm-hmm. widening abortion access to some of the most permissive abortion laws on the planet. And those have received no attention. Most people don't know in, that in many of the most populous states in this union, mm-hmm. you can have an abortion, really no questions asked, up until nine months. Most people don't know that you can let a child die uh, from neglect after, if it's born alive during a botched abortion. Most people don't know that. And the media are not telling them that, but they're telling them possibly fake
2: news stories uh, about. About women's health being in danger. Yeah.
3: But what we also hear is if a state is looking at passing a bill that would protect babies after 15 weeks, they call it an abortion ban. But they aren't telling the people that 95% of all abortions would still continue. Uh, If they set it at 12 weeks, which North Carolina has just passed a bill, and I believe the governor is going to veto, uh, that says abortion will not be allowed after 12 weeks, that still allows about 90% of all abortions to uh, be performed. But we're going to be hearing that that is an abortion ban. Several states have laws that allow, um, allow abortions or prevent abortions after six weeks, after the baby's heartbeat can be detected. That still allows about fifty percent of all abortions to be uh, performed because most abortions, or at least half of them, are ha- are happening in that in the first six weeks, and yet that also is labeled an abortion ban, and you know it's just the language that you know for anyone who sees it, hears it, if they can, whether it is a local newspaper. That you could do a letter to the editor if it's something that's online. They have, you know, all these sites have comment sections. Um, Use social media. Let people realize this is not a ban. Um, When I and one more example quickly, um, when it is a heartbeat bill where the baby is going to be protected after the heartbeat can uh, protected after the heartbeat can be detected, we always hear. A state is banning abortion after six weeks, before most women know they are pregnant. Most women, by six weeks, do know they are pregnant. Um, there may be circumstances the girl, you know, is, is too young, or a woman just, you know, thinks because of something that happened she's not capable of getting pregnant. But by and large, most people realize that if you have sex, pregnancy is a possibility. You can go to a Walmart, Walgreens, you know, most stores, you can go to dollar stores and get pregnancy tests. And yet we always hear, you know, Bill would stop uh, stop abortion after six weeks before most women know they are pregnant. So those are the kinds of things that pro-lifers across the country and even around the world could make a difference, stand up and educate people that. That's just not the case. And, you know, the media in so many places and cases um, just aren't telling us the truth. And
2: the people who are buying into it, by the way, who have bought into that are the people who are making the laws. You know, they, they're this kind of elite who are setting the agenda. I, I would like to, I hope you I know I, I wonder whether you agree with me. I think if the regular population of America actually knew, I think if they actually knew that babies were aborted were being aborted at every stage and, and right up to right up to nine months. I don't think that's what they want. I mean, I I would have thought that Bill Clinton's old you know safe legal and rare was much more. Am am, am I delusional about that or or has or has the safe legal and rare been completely replaced with anytime anywhere whatever I want?
3: The American public still wants safe legal and rare, but the abortion industry and the people making our laws do not. They've tossed that out the window.
1: Well, Carol, I mean, on that kind of downbeat note, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave you there. Um, But um, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's a, a, please uh, anyone who's anything to say to Carol or us, please leave a comment below in the YouTube or in the Apple podcast app or in the, uh, we we want to hear what you think uh, because this is a, this is a conundrum how so much of America doesn't know the truth about abortion and how we can get the truth out there because we're journalists. and We just want to get the truth out there and want people to know the facts to make up their own mind. Thanks for coming on the show, Carol.
3: Thanks, Carol. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah,
2: there we go. There yeah, we
1: go. Um, that's that's the way the world is at the moment. Uh, the, there are there's
2: mu- much much work to be done. Yeah, I yes. think that that's I think that's what I got out of got out of that interview. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to go over to to talk to to Jim Wood. Yes, the man, the man, the myth, the legend. Yeah, um, who, put,
1: who, is, who really put Gosnell behind? Uh, behind bars, um,
2: and who has become a great friend of ours um, through the amount of uh, through the through the work that we did on the movie, on the book, uh, on the podcast, um, and just yes. is a what a you know what a wonderful representative of police in the United States. What a great guy! Let's go over to that right now.
1: And now we're joined by Detective Jim Wood, uh, who was the dogged investigator who first realised that something just wasn't right at 3801 Lancaster Avenue uh, and it was his curiosity it was his uh, gut feeling uh, and some evidence that led him to look further it was his innate curiosity that that so many people in this world a quality that so many people in this world seem to lack these days it was that innate curiosity that brought him into uh, 3801 Lancaster and led ultimately to the conviction of possibly America's biggest serial killer. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you for having me.
2: Hi, Jim. It's great to see you. Hi, Anne. Hey, Phelan. Good Hi. to see you guys,
1: too. Can you tell us, so you were a detective uh, in in Philadelphia, but you, were, you weren't in the public health department. You weren't in the murder department. You weren't in the uh, child abuse department. You were in the drugs uh, department, I suppose departments, not the drugs unit. Uh, and you weren't even strictly in the police department That's either. Right. So tell us where you were and what was a good looking, good, good looking guy like you doing in a strange place like that.
0: My whole career I spent uh, mostly doing drug work. Even before I was a Philadelphia police officer, I did a stint in Ocean City, New Jersey to start my law enforcement career out. And they put me undercover in 1984 Uh, In 1986, I joined the Philadelphia Police Academy because I always wanted to be a police officer. Um, And it was a short time after that I got involved in drug work because back in the mid 80s to late 80s, um, crack cocaine became a big problem all over America. And uh, from there, I slowly climbed the ladder of narcotics investigations where I wound up in the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office as a police officer, believe it or not. And while my time there, I took the detectives test and I actually made detective at the DA's office. And um, shortly thereafter, I was transferred from the DA's office narcotics unit back to a busy division investigating uh, major crimes in Southwest
1: detectives. Right, but when you you were investigating Gosnell, you were still attached to the DA's office, is that right?
0: Yes. So a short while after I, I I got back to the DA's office, I spent a couple of months in Southwest Detectives, got back to the Philadelphia District Attorney's office. And then I think it was 2009, we started um, using an undercover Richie Gramlich to make um, oxycodone purchases. Uh, the big oxycodone pill back then was uh, the 80 milligram pill. It was widely abused and um, it made a lot of people addicted, and Gaznell came on our radar because he was the source of supply uh, to the people that we were investigating.
2: And it's and it's interesting. We we have that tape actually. We should play it where where the very first time his name is mentioned, and it's actually kind of funny. Let's just listen to that.
1: Who who are you taking me to? So I know, you know what I mean. Like, guys, I mean, you
3: talking about what doctor? Yeah, I told you about
1: Gosnell. Who? Dr. Gosnell.
2: Dr. Darnell? Guys, G-O-S-N-E-L-L, guys Okay. History was made that day where she she spells it out, G-O-S-N-E-L-L, she says the name. I
0: just told the story, that exact story, the other day because you can't make this stuff up. Um, When we're looking for uh, the main distributor, whether it's regular drugs or a doctor, uh, we're trying to find the source of that supply, and I remember specifically talking. I was standing in the street, and Richie Gramlich was in his car, and I'm prompting him, "Come on, Rich, get her to tell who the doctor is." And so finally, that's what he does. He 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 just comes out and asks her who the doctor was, and he kept misunderstanding what she had said.
2: Darnell, Darnell, yeah, yeah.
0: And that's when she got frustrated and said, "No."
1: Doctor Gosnell and spelled out the whole thing. If, 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 if we wasn't being careful, there be a, it could be a poor Doctor Darnell in Philadelphia, sort of <laughs> with lots of surveillance pictures of him. No. But anyway, we, okay. we, it wasn't Doctor Dan- Darnell; it was Doctor Gosnell. And very quickly, it became more than a drugs re- a drugs issue, didn't it? You know, you got some information. You thought, hmm, this That's, is not yes. right. So, tell us about how how it, be- it moved from a drugs raid to really America's biggest serial killer. So we moved up the
0: ladder and your great movie portrayed it well. We would always give somebody the opportunity to cooperate as we went up the ladder. And ultimately, we got uh, to talking to um, the the secretary at Gosnell's office, uh, Latasha Lewis. And she was the first one to give an idea of what was going on. Not the entire idea, but just how dirty the office was the instruments that weren't cleaned, um, and all of the other crazy stuff that went on in the office that we didn't believe until we actually saw it. But one of the most particular things she told us about was the death of Karnamaya Mangar. Uh, She didn't know her name at the time, but she gave enough information that we contacted the medical examiner's office and ultimately identified Karnamaya and um, got the medical report. And that kind of solidified what Latasha had said that uh, Linda Williams had given medication to this poor woman and she ended up dying. And here the only way we figured out who she even was and what happened to her was getting that medical examiner report.
2: But I think, you know, before we go on to the Night of the Raid, which I want to go on to next, I think we just want to... I want to stop for a minute and just recognise what, what happened here with, with, with Karnamaya Monger. This was a Bhutanese refugee who had come to America. She was in America four months before she died after a botched abortion at, a, at, at Gosnell's clinic. However, the really important part is that her death went unnoticed by everyone, except for Detective Jim Wood. And I'm so proud of the, of the quote that is in the book... <laughs> that we got from Christine Christine Wexler, the the assistant district attorney on the case, who basically said, J- "Detective Jim Wood was Carnemaya's Karnamaya Monger's champion. She was. He was the only one. He was the only one. If it wasn't for you." Seeking justice for this woman, for this Bhutanese refugee who were meant to believe American progressives would care so much about what would happen to her, that the system would care so much about a refugee Mm -hmm. and no one cared. No part of the system cared about her death until you turned up. They closed
1: the file. They investigated, you know, allegedly a health department uh, in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania allegedly investigated. They didn't even visit the clinic. No one had visited that clinic for 17 years despite two women dying in those 17
2: years. So Jim, and I, I'm going to say this because Jim won't, mightn't say it for himself, but because of, because of his doggedness, he actually went out of his own purview. He was in, at that point working you know, strictly on the, drug, on the drug case. And he asked, and I, you could cor- correct me, Jim, but I think I'm correct in saying this. You asked if you could also investigate what had happened to this woman. And you got a search warrant that also allowed you to ask questions about Karnamaya Monger. Is that correct?
0: Yes, it is. Um, ultimately, and I think any detective, see, you know, getting the information that a woman died and no idea of how she died or uh, the, the little bit that we had that some untrained woman gave her uh, a drug that killed her ultimately and the doctor was and, and held um, accountable for that was absurd to me. I, I couldn't believe that this did slip through the cracks. Um, it, it, never should have happened. Um, I, I can't say I could blame the police or other detectives because they weren't even aware of it because it was hidden so well. Uh, there was a, a break in the system. Somebody should have questioned why Karmaya Mongar died and they didn't. Um, and, and I just, w- one of the first things I did was look for a police report because when you have a death, whether it's a suspicious death or a murder or any kind of suicide, there's there's a police report conducted and an investigation done, and I couldn't find anything near that. Um, so it just was fortunate that we were able to track down that medical report and follow up with that.
2: Yeah, and that brought us flash forward. Then that brought us to the night of the raid. I want to kind of you know give people a picture of that because also from your point of view, and, and I remember you you and I have had many many conversations. We've talked to you so many times about this story. But you know Philadelphia is you know is quite a quite a city. And I think I I, I remember you you talked about um, somebody. Oh, I'm trying to think who it was. But some you know big shot guy that was there who said basically you know, you're you know you're on you're for, you're in here for the ride of your life. You yeah, but being,
1: being a detective, being a police city. You, for Philadelphia. Uh, You're going to see everything. It's a free ticket to the greatest show on yeah. earth. Yeah. That's but it. you
2: might, but you might not want it or whatever. No, but,
1: but you, I think you said it very well. You says, I don't know if it's free, you know? but I don't know if it's free. <laughs> so <that> basically <laughs>
2: people, you know, Philadelphia police officers have seen basically everything. Um, but then you had, you got an education, something that night, 3801, that night, that night that you went to 3801 Lancaster, you saw things that you had never seen before. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah. So actually it was, it was, both nights. I think I was there three nights in a row, which was way too much for for anybody. But the first night was the initial raid when, again, we knew uh, Kornemai Mangar had died. So we were looking for evidence of Demerol that was in her system that was in the medical examiner report um, and other other evidence related to her death. Uh, We actually found the envelope with her name on it, with the money still inside in Gosnell's office. That was another... Creepy thing uh, to come across,
2: but talk us through like when you so you know and I know you you all gathered outside and he had been work he'd been working in his in his the clinic that he worked at in Delaware so he came late in the evening it was, I was think it was like eight o'clock at night you're all standing outside waiting to meet him and he has like his food with him and he's got these bags and stuff and you g- approached him and said you know we've got search warrants for you, for these premises and he actually thought you were you were looking to for, for something across the road because obviously West Philadelphia plenty of things happen. What Talk us through that first time you walked through the door there.
0: Sure. So we were waiting for him to come back from his office in Delaware, and we weren't sure whether he was going to go home first or go to the office. And fortunately, most of us were at the office, and that's where he arrived. So we approached him, explained that we had a search warrant for his house and his office. And he didn't seem shocked at all. He just was a matter of fact. He was on the phone with his wife, and um, basically didn't act in a way that most people would react, especially someone in a, you know, professional, uh, business would be, I think, Mm -hmm. upset or show a different kind of attitude, but it just, it was cavalier as we all know he is. Um, and we walked into the office, uh, he asked if he could bring his, his lunch and his briefcase. And, um, and then he asked if he could bring the bag of, uh, Clamshells. Yeah, this is a very
1: important, <laughs> oh, yeah, <that> <laughs> uh, very important point here because when, when you're being investig- when there's detectives when you're a doctor and there's detectives in your clinic looking for illegal drugs, illegal drug dealing, potential murder, uh, all, all that. What's the most important thing you do? Tell us, Jim, what he wanted to do.
0: He wanted to bring his uh, clams in so he could feed his turtles. That was most important on his mind at the time. Which, again, the beginning of our Twilight Zone experience with now.
2: <laughs> but again, w- walking through that door, what was the first thing that hit you?
0: The smell. It was a hard smell of death, um, a mixture of chemicals. Um, it's just so hard to describe because there was, it was just... Um, a horrible smell. And uh, this is—and
2: again, I just want to point out to people like this is coming from you. You you know, it's not your first murder scene, by the way. It's not your first crime scene. Um, you know, you've been around. So, you know, and I think I, we know from all the people we've interviewed, not just you, but also, you know, all the other people who were on that raid um, who basically all talked about the smell. That well, it, was it was
1: completely. Who was it? Somebody said they had special gosnel clothes that that were that they would burn when they would come back it was christine christine she, she, and she i had, think and also had,
2: joanne pescatore
1: yeah they, they would burn their clothes because you just couldn't get the smell out of it yeah. um I, and
0: th- that's a good point because i think one of the most genius moves in the trial and phelan you were there to see it they brought in the equipment and i when i was in the courtroom myself i could smell that smell emanating from the equipment so I'm sure the jurors probably smelled it as well. Uh, it, it, it was just a pungent, foul odor, um, just an odor of death, basically.
1: Yeah, well, so we have some photographs, actually. So, so tell us about some of the other, you know, that's the, the olfactory yes. madness. But as you w-
2: walk through, we're going to show people as we're talking. So you your- open
1: a cupboard, and what did you see in the cupboard? Let's start there. <laughs> we, I
0: saw a jar that it, it, it shocked my mind at the time because they they look like feet I'm like there's no way there's little feet in these jars and sure enough there was and it just blew my mind away but again um, and I've said this many times I had never been in an abortion clinic before so I didn't know what really to expect but common sense tells you that's not normal even in an abortion
1: clinic I, I mean I suppose you know it's almost a cliche now and I wonder I often wonder you know sometimes you hear oh serial killers they keep trophies you know and it's like well, actually, maybe they, maybe you know, maybe the, all the movies are right. Maybe serial killers do keep trophies. This is classic serial killer behavior because not only were the baby feet in jars, but they were labeled as well with the names of the babies and the names, the names of, the of the mothers, mothers, and the dates of birth and all this kind of thing. So, this is this is, as you say, the twilight zone. Well, there was one
0: other thing that made me think it was a trophy. A trophy too, is when um, the night we took the babies out of the freezer, Gosnell specifically told me about Karnamaya Mangar's baby, was it, and I'll never forget it. Every time I I look at those pictures of the freezer and I see in the far right corner wrapped in a paper towel, white paper towel was a plastic bag. You could see right through the plastic bag and it had the initials KM on it for Karnamaya Mangar. And Gosnell specifically, I wanna say boasts about that, showing that to me that night it was absurd
1: the, the refrigerator was f- filled with babies how did he know exactly where it is and he must have been in looking at it
2: well he had that no i mean i think that was so that one was separate from from the others he, isn't that right that Jim? was yeah that was the only
1: one by
0: the, the baby that baby was the only one by itself and specifically he pointed that out um which made me think yeah and and you have to remember karnamai mangler died in november of 2009 now we're talking we're there february 18th 2010 and several months later and
1: that was told. The- and I mean there was cats everywhere let's just look at the photographs of the cats um, did you
2: see cats that night I know you I think you. was it you that took the photograph
1: yes yeah I took a photo of the
0: cat and the, and the cat was right in the area where there was blood on the floor blood stains on the floor um, there was litter boxes there that were, were full um yeah there was it, it was a mess and we had heard that from uh, I think it may have been Latasha Lewis that there were cats in there and cat feces all over the place. And that probably contributed, I'm sure, to the smell of the death in that office.
2: And, a, and, a, and an unusual thing happened there. So there were patients in there waiting to have abortions that night that you guys were there. And you had two members of the Department of Health from Harrisburg who eventually, you know, eventually you managed to get them to, to turn up um and bizarrely, a very bizarre thing happened because suddenly you were asked tell us what happened. Quite an unusual thing happened, given the circumstances of how dirty the place was. There was cats all around the place. There was this smell of death. And yet what was allowed to continue that night?
0: So we had nurses there to assist. And I didn't actually know their purpose at the time uh, that they were associated with abortion clinics. But there was a problem with one of the women and uh, they allowed Gosnell to finish a procedure that he had started because the w- woman was bleeding. Now, I don't know why they allowed him to do that. Myself and Jason Huff, the FBI agent um, in the case with us, were astounded that that was going to happen. It was one of his acting supervisors that approved Gosnell to do this, um, which Again, w- was ridiculous in my mind because I understand you need, you know, a, a emergency services. But we had emergency services coming anyway, so I don't think it would have hurt just to wait another minute or two longer to have them looked over by someone who's qualified, not Gosnell, the murderer. Mm-hmm. Yeah
2: um i mean we, we could you know that we could rehearse the whole story i mean it's a it's an incredible story and a lot of our obviously the people who are listening here are the people um who made who made it possible for us to write the book and to and to make, make the a movie and and, and do the, and the podcast crime. but and i the play I, and the play I, yeah and we're, <laughs> and, and we're not finished and we're not finished yet um sorry jim what did you just say there sorry
0: i was just saying and everything you guys have done has been outstanding and right to the point and we and my whole family really appreciates it too
1: well i was very pleased and honored to meet your mother yes. the, legend. the legend um <laughs> uh during the play run of the play in new york she came up to new york this is a woman whose husband you know uh she had what 10 children uh whose husband had 12 um, uh, 12, <laughs> 12, 12 children, children. wow yes. okay 12 children uh uh whose husband was was diagnosed with MS in his 30s, uh, had to give up work. She had to keep the family going, keep the 12 kids clothed, fed, and watered, as they say. And, uh, you know, I met her just a year or two ago. Uh, She's uh, a wonderful woman, has raised... Great sons and daughters, and also
2: the and also yeah. the family. Your father, I know, that within law enforcement, and and most of the family are in law enforcement. Quite a quite a number of you. I remember yeah. being there a few years ago and meeting meeting some of the some of the rest of the, the of the wood, the squad of the, of the squad.
0: Two of my son-in-laws, one's a Pennsylvania State Trooper, the others a Philadelphia Police Officer. Yep, it's it's all in the family, which is is great. It's a a wonderful um, experience, you know. You you take the good with the bad, but um, there's always light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Well,
2: you know, talking of light in the end, t- and we have to come to the end because we're running out of time, unfortunately. But um, remind us of I know so so basically you you know Jim worked this this case right up until right up until the end, but. And, you know, and it was a huge case involved, an awful lot of police you know, officers, a lot of crime scene detectives, the FBI were involved. Super um, people, super people. Incredible, incredible team. But, you know, none of it would have happened without, you know, without the fact that you, you know, were dogged about Karnamaya Monger from the get go. And I think everyone in law enforcement recognized that. And so when it came to arresting Gosnell, they said, let Jim put the let Jim put the put the handcuffs on him, even though really it wouldn't it shouldn't have been you, actually, because this was a homicide. This was, I'm talking about the homicide side of the case. Tell us about that day, about putting the handcuffs on him eventually. And tell us about that. Describe that.
0: So in, in police work, it's a, a lot of times ceremonial when you take down a big um, criminal, or, or, you know, some some significant arrest in your career. Uh, for, for whatever reason, it becomes ceremonial sometimes. So, uh, during the time I was, um, talking to Gosnell that day, I I told him, and and it was true. I was going to retire. I didn't mean from law enforcement completely, but at that time from Philadelphia, I knew my time was running to the end because I wanted to move on and and work somewhere else. But in saying that Gosnell said, you retired me and it kind of made me feel really good, uh, and a short time after that, yeah, I, I placed the handcuffs on Gosnell, and he was transported um, downtown, which is not another whole story. We'll have to do another segment about that. Yeah, because yeah. another day. Uh, yeah. The, 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 the way it worked out is, is yes, it, it, was, it should have been handled by the Philadelphia Police Department. But because of things between the DA's office and the police department, and there was news stories getting out, um, someone was leaking news stories they the, the news will be at search warrants before we were even there. So that's one of the reasons why they kept it kind of secret within the DA's office and allowed me to get the arrest warrants for everybody. 10 years, uh, it's amazing how fast time goes by just for the conviction, but what a story that you guys keep in the limelight and it should be because this should never be forgotten. This should never happen again. And what's going on now, uh, continuing, uh, its it's unbelievable how humanity can turn a blind eye to what's going on now. And a little throw out there, I don't know if you guys ever heard of Leroy Carhartt.
2: Yes, Carhartt, yeah.
0: Yeah, he just passed away too, and he was another guy's now.
2: Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, God, we hadn't heard but, about that, about his
0: yeah. past. Yeah, so okay. they're out there, and they we got to stop there. them.
1: Well, Gosnell's not yes. out there anymore. He's in prison, but he's uh, he's he used to phone us a lot. He doesn't phone us so much now, uh, since we wrote the book on him and that. Uh, but uh, he's training for a triathlon because he's going to be exonerated, and he's going to be freed. That's what he says. That's what he says. I, 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 we, we visited him in prison, and he spent a lot of the time putting his hand on Anne's knee uh, because he's a creep. Um, so. Sorry. It's okay, Jim. That's all right. That's probably Gosnell phoning you there. You yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. just talked him up. He's giving me a call right now. <laughs> <laughs> he probably listens to the podcast. Okay. Listen. Thank you so much, Jim. Thanks, Jim. All the best.
0: You, well, well, good. I uh, hope to see you guys soon. You yeah, will. You will.
1: So we did the Gosnell um, True Crime Podcast. It's called Serial Killer, A True Crime Podcast. Uh, it's about Jim and all those people. It's six episodes. Uh, You can get it wherever you like your podcast. There'll be a a link in the show notes. But do you remember we were interviewing uh, Christine Wexler outside the Gosnell Clinic in Philadelphia? Mm -hmm. And then we discovered something very interesting. Let's play that clip from the podcast now.
2: Mm -hmm. But has anything really changed? Do the regulators now take their responsibility seriously? Are they focused on protecting patients in abortion clinics? Or do they still avert their gaze? leaving women and babies at the mercy of criminals and bad actors. They claim they have changed, but I'm not so sure. For this podcast, we brought former Assistant District Attorney Christine Wexler back to Lancaster Avenue. Do I like to think about the time that I spent
3: here? No, because it was awful and it was ugly, but I'm proud of the work I did here, certainly.
2: We were interviewing her outside the closed-up building that used to house Gosnell's abortion clinic. Wandering down the side, a door looked open.
3: Look, it's open. It's open. The, the door's open. Look, see, this is the holding, this is the waiting room.
2: Come in. Christine would not go in. She's a lawyer and follows the rules.
3: There's still files over there, and I can't believe the door's actually open. We should probably make a telephone call.
2: After the interview, we felt we had to see what was behind the doors at 3801 Lancaster Avenue. Inside is a confused, rambling building that's basically a time capsule from the day after the February 2010 raid. There are partially filled in documents, birthday cards on desks. It's like everything stopped dead in its tracks at the Women's Medical Society clinic. Up in Gosnell's office, his family pictures are still on his desk. In a drawer, Gosnell has a collection of pornography, pictures and videos. In other rooms, There is dirty, decrepit machinery. Then at the back, there is a room that shows nothing has changed among Philadelphia's regulators. The room has nothing but shelf after shelf after shelf of medical files of women who had abortions. I say files. In reality, each file has a couple of pages with little medical history. But it does have the woman's name and her address and phone number. And if she had had any previous abortions. I estimated there are about 10,000 files there. No regulator ever thought to come and remove them. They don't care about their well-being or their privacy. They've already moved on, leaving extremely private medical files open for the world to see. Each of those files represents that uncaring attitude. But I am cognizant that the files also represent a life that was extinguished. Stalin once said that a single death is a tragedy, but a million deaths is just a statistic. He was making the point that it is easy to become emotional about a single person, less so when it's a large number of victims. I spend a lot of time thinking about baby boy A and Mrs Monger and their fight for life. But those files brought home the fact that tens of thousands of lives also ended here over Gosnell's 40-year killing spree. Many of these deaths were legal under Pennsylvania's abortion law, which allows abortions up to six months. But all those files represented a potential life that is now gone, lost to the world. I wonder who each and every one of them could have been. This podcast is dedicated to them.
1: And there is the photograph of the files, every one of those files. And
2: this is progressive Pennsylvania where they say that they really care about women and they don't care enough to bother picking up those files with women's personal information, their telephone numbers, their addresses, yes, but, many abortions. Uh, but they've I,
1: had. I think we also need to, as you said in, in the podcast, each one of those files is it represents a death, you know, uh, it represents, you know, terrible, terrible behavior by by. Department of Health and all, but each each one of those and and, it's, and the file I call it a file. It's it's a couple of pages of nothing, but there's a there's a name and a date, and and the recording of a death, uh, and we should never forget that 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 this is about. The death of innocence. And Innocent by the way, we won't people. forget that, and we yeah. won't
2: stop telling this story. Yeah. And by the way, I, it's very important to say that we did this work because of you, because of you helping us. Um, and this week, we are doing a big drive to try and raise funds to keep doing this work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And we would appreciate anything that you can do. We have a matching grant going on right now, so anything that you could that you could that you could donate will be doubled. Um, and we would really ask you to go to unreportedstorysociety.com dot com, yeah. and donate as much as you can because we are not finished and the the people you know as we have mentioned during this podcast there is a very dangerous new development where Um, very, very extreme abortion laws are now being brought into legislation in the states. You know, Mm. it was all very well to reverse Roe v. Wade, but now states are making decisions about what they want on the legislation. And when they get their way in progressive states and even in some not so progressive states, it's kind of shocking what's happening because the pro-life movement is outspent, dramatically outspent by the pro-abortion side. And people
1: don't know the reality of abortion. And they have Hollywood and they have the news media. So that's why we, we are telling this story in so many different ways. Podcasts, movies, plays, and 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 another way uh, that hasn't happened yet. And another way that we're still going to do. That's why we need your help, because people need to know the truth. As journalists, we're only interested in bringing them the facts so they can make up their own minds. So please go to unreportedstoriesociety.com. I want to end on a happy note today. I think that's very important. Let's end with the possum. So the last time
2: time we talked, by the way, when I was here on my own, I I shared some footage with you of the possum, you know, whatever. So there's been a new development.
1: Several new developments. Several new developments. So there's, there's a possum with babies attached we believe was well, now forced look at out this.
2: Of oh but hang on don't even say it so quickly look at this lovely situation We were, this was new to us by the way we're new to marsupials by the way if we're from Ireland we have no marsupials in Ireland so you have just the one marsupial in, our, in in America and it's called a possum we're very fond of the possum and here you have look at Mr. Possum Mrs. Possum with her babies look at the babies hanging on for dear life and then what happens I think still,
1: I think that, ba- that possum was forced out from next door next door had a flood and they had a pump running 20 Four hours a day, you can probably. I don't know if we're playing sound there or not, but I think it was forced out from there, so our forced out of their home. But then, since then, uh, we have had a whole slew of possums. We've had. An old, with a Mrs. Possum. We've had a kind of a middle-aged Possum. Let's have a look at that. Or a young, young, then we've had a super baby Possum. Yeah. Look at him up that was on, last night. on the bowl. Yeah, and to he has to the, get,
2: it, now, and, you know, so basically it's turning into a wildlife reserve. As and then we've got a crow
1: that comes along and picks and up And then during the,
2: the day, if there's anything left in that bowl, but by the way, we have to be, the timing is absolutely crucial. We basically put the food out for the Possum at, around nine o'clock at night. And, and, and at five past nine, the Possums arrive. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah and basically and, and they you're lined what? up outside the fence you know, they clean they clean before them there's not a thing left it's actually quite extraordinary yeah. um but yeah but we really love the possums and it's it's funny the people across the road from us by the way had an incident like during and, and this is this you know it's hilarious so they middle of the night four o'clock in the morning they could hear that they're they're um their cat making a huge yeah. fuss and their cat has a tendency to bring things back that are alive and put yeah. them in the bath and then play with them. So the husband got up, the wife said to the husband, you get her, I want get up and find out what's in the bath. So the cat mm-hmm. is in the bath with a baby possum. The baby possum was still alive. So what they did with the baby possum, which <laughs> is hilarious, the two of them looked at each other and went, well, we know where the baby possum needs to go. The baby possum needs to go over to Anne and Phelan's house because that's where all the possums live. Yeah, I, assume,
1: so <laughs> I assume that is the baby possum that's on that we just saw on the? Uh, I yes. hope it is. Yeah. So that's anyone what by I'm the telling way, myself. So anyway.
2: anyone anyone out there who has um, advice for us about the possums, please. The one piece of advice we do not want is we do not want to stop feeding the possums. We actually like feeding the possums. There's nothing wrong with possums. They do not bring disease. They're very clean. They're very nice. They have lovely, ugly hands and very bad teeth, which reminds us of our own dentistry problems in Europe and so we just love the possum now there's no harm in the possum and that's
1: what you're telling yourself anyway no 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 write in the notes below tell us what your thoughts are on possums on American Possums. Okay, this is the end of the show. This thank you the very the much. Show, for Show and coming. again,
2: thank. Yeah, remember this is a very special kind of a special episode. Remembering Gosnell ten, ten years later. Um,
1: so buy the Gosnell book if you if you want more yes, information. Yes,
2: actually, There it is there. We're very proud. Of, we're very proud of the book. Um,
1: New York Times bestseller, even though they didn't want the even declare though they, did, it.
2: they didn't want to declare it. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I was going to read a part of it, but you know what? We, we've run. We've kind of run out of time, unfortunately. Well, today. Then, could we
1: play a little excerpt? Maybe you read excerpts of the grand jury, or do you want to? Read
2: Read it, read no, we so. can actually read. We can actually take a tape of it from the audible version of the book. Actually, yes. that's what we'll do. Yeah, yeah, we'll play a little bit. We'll play out this episode with a little bit of the book from the audible version, um, which yeah. I narrated. Yes. Um, and and let's do that. And um, we'll talk to you next week. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, bye. 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 On June the tenth, twenty fifteen, a small group of people gathered at Laurel Hill Cemetery, overlooking the Schuylkill River to commemorate the 47 babies whose bodies were discovered frozen in Gosnell's clinic. The mourners consisted of clergy, pro-life activists and others, touched by the stories of how the children had died. Roman Catholic Archbishop Charles Chaput and pro-life activists had mounted a campaign to obtain custody of the baby's remains from the city so that they might be buried properly. They had learned, to their sadness, that the babies had already been buried by the city at Laurel Hill on September the 12th, 2013. The medical examiner's office explained that this was standard procedure for bodies not claimed by any next of kin. It's true. Near the burial site of the 47 Gosnell victims is a small tombstone marking where the city buried 1,500 unclaimed bodies in 2010. Alliance Defending Freedom attorney Catherine Glenn Foster acknowledged that, in the end, Philadelphia officials had fulfilled the wishes of all who wished to pay their respects to the babies. Today we can say that the city of Philadelphia has heard us. They gave these babies a place to be buried, she said. These babies were like any other, precious little persons, Foster told the mourners gathered in the summer sun, How a person dies doesn't make anyone less human. Try as hard as he might. Neither their killer nor his infamy could erase these babies' humanity. We will use this sacred place to cry, to remember, and to say, This ends here. During the memorial service, well-wishers placed a temporary marker and a small blue silk flower... To indicate where the babies were buried. It reads, May God welcome the souls of these children killed by Kermit Gosnell, and the souls of all children killed by abortion, into the joy of heaven. The mourners also brought flowers and white wooden crosses. But the people who had petitioned for the babies' bodies felt that the city had let Gosnell's victims down. It was wrong, they said, that the children had been buried secretly. The Reverend Patrick Mahoney, director of the Washington, D.C.-based Christian Defence Coalition, said at the memorial, I would simply say this to the medical examiner and the Philadelphia city government. These children were not unclaimed. We came for months after months seeking these children in love. They were not unclaimed. They were wanted. They were desired. They had meaning and purpose. It's a sentiment we share.